house. No, the right house. I did it, get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. I told you never to call me that in public. Did mom sleep with someone before marrying dad? Bo Burrows. Who? Mom liked Bo Burrows. You seduced him, and then she ran off with him a week before the wedding. Isn't that what happened? I don't believe everything you see in the movies. Get me a copy of The Graduate. It's my family, Jeff. We are the Robinsons. Why has no one ever told me about this? Well, most of all, you have to hide it from the kids, Cuckoo. You're Mrs. Robinson. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast trying to find the perfect cowboy hat for our horse riding vacation. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my Mr. Robinson, Joe Reed. I have always said that Jesus loves me more than I will know. So that fits. No. That fits. Hey, you started it. You started it with this Mr. Robinson business. You know, it works. It does. Well, works better than uh, this movie. It works better than the movie we're going to talk about. (laughs) Oh, boy. Boy, oh, boy. You know what's so funny about this movie is... Everything. Well, yes. Um, Unintentionally. Except... I was going to say, except for how it's supposed to be. Um... I remember very vividly the buzz leading up to this movie. There was a lot of expectation on it for a lot of different reasons, um, which all of which we'll sort of delve into. And then everybody saw it and everybody was just like, well, no. And (laughs) it's kind of gotten worse and worse in my memory and also sort of more more and more disposable because there's just no reason to ever really talk about this movie. And so watching this for the podcast and researching it and discovering – what a fraught production history it had that I kind of had 1, no idea thousand percent. I was really surprised that nobody really talks about it anymore because like all I of always the... thought that it was a Rob Reiner movie. I didn't know. It seems like it would be. And I guess that's maybe why he was sort of the no brainer choice to sort of take it over uh, when it was taken away from Ted Griffin. But Mr. Sutton Foster. Mr. Sutton Foster, among like many other things. So, like Ted Griffin's one of those names who you just sort of like know from several different contexts. One of them being this small little TV show he did for FX called Terriers that lasted one season that was so good, and like everybody who watched it, like really, really sort of loved it and kind of rode for it, but it wasn't a lot of people who watched it. So uh, it only lasted one season. And that was kind of his last thing that everybody liked. Because after that, he wrote uh, Tower Heist. Well, after that, Tower Heist came out, which he had uh, co-written. And that was a really big disappointment. And he hasn't really done anything hugely of note since then. Tower Heist, the original uh, controversial uh, day and date movie. (laughs) 
Okay, remind me what the controversy was there, because, like, there's so many things with, like, Brett Ratner movies that that were problematic back then. And like I this think one... there were other problematic things, but that was like the first movie that tried to be like, we're going to put this on VOD for 50 bucks during oh. the holidays or something, or whenever that movie came out, they were going to try it. It was the holidays. And... I'm pretty sure it was a December movie. Yeah. And it got scrapped and <laughs> ultimately, okay. yeah. uh, you know, no one really saw that movie and it was bad. Um, that was around the time, was that around the time that Brett Ratner was going to produce the Oscars and Eddie Murphy was going to host, and he said that rehearsals for fags and they fired him? Is that the, was that, would, it would it have had to have been. I thought it was after that. Tower Heist, but maybe I'm wrong. A Tower Heist is just the movie that I remember for them, try, like the first big budget movie that they tried to do. Yes, this was. He and it resigned. may not have even been day and date. It may have been like two weeks after the release was supposed to happen. The The American release for Tower Heist was November 4th, 2011. Brett Ratner resigned as producer of the Oscars on November 8th, 2011. So it was definitely that one. Because that was the whole Eddie Murphy of it all. He was going yeah. to, Eddie Murphy was going to host because that was his, you know, uh, most recent director. And which that controversy... 2011 seems like a long time ago for that controversy and also like too long ago. Like it's one of those things that doesn't really fit in the timeline at all in terms of because I also think that that gets conflated with the Kevin Hart Oscar uh-huh. uh take backsy thing where which is like uh, I it feels like the Eddie Murphy hosting like controversy fallout thing was the beginning of people really not wanting to host the Oscars. Yes. Yes, that was when I think people first started grumbling that hosting the Oscars was too much more trouble than it's worth. You're going to get canceled. You're going to whatever. To which I had always said, like, well, unless you have been on the record as saying rehearsals for fags, like, I'm not sure what you're so worried about. Like, what exactly? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, this whole thing, well, like, if Brett it... Ratner can get canceled, what of anybody else? It's like, that's not really the logic that I think makes a I... whole lot of sense. I... Well, I do think that some of that gets overblown in terms of the whole Oscar hosting thing, because it does feel like they're getting these people too late. Like, if you want Tom Holland to host the Oscars, you can't ask him two months before the Oscars. These are people who have, like, their schedules written out two years in advance, you know? This was always the Billy Crystal thing, where he was like, if I'm going to host the Oscars, it's going to take, like, six months out of my life. So... You know, that becomes a thing that you really have to decide to commit to pretty early on. And and yeah, all of a sudden now, because the Oscars seem to be in this constant state of flux in terms of what kind of show they want to produce. And we just had in the last week these announcements that these eight categories are now going to be presented off of the main telecast. And they're going to pre-record the red carpet, which is seriously the dumbest thing. Pre-record the red carpet and then hand out the awards in a pre-recorded manner so that they can then sort of sprinkle them through the, I guess, ad bumpers through the show, which is... Everything's going to leak early. Everything's going to leak early. If your whole idea is that we want to get more people to watch the show, congratulations, you've got everybody to get all their I mean, information even the now the red carpets Twitter, are so. going to leak early if they're trying to pre-record the red carpet. All like, of red carpet stuff's going to leak early. Do you think Getty Images is going to like comply with your weird little... Uh, embargo like come on 
they're they're shooting themselves in the foot because they're going to piss off enough people that like too late in the game they're going to try to put things back on the ceremony and it's going to be a mess yeah it's going to be a total mess i feel really bad at this point for regina hall and wanda sykes and amy schumer who now have to become the sort of flashpoint for an oscar ceremony that is poised to seemingly have nobody like it now. Like everybody is coming from a different <laughs> angle of being sort of pre disappointed by this. And I feel bad that the three of them are going to have to bear the brunt of that. And it's just stupid. It's just dumb. Did you hear, by the way, the other thing I, this is the, I'm crossing oh, no. my podcast. Streams. Oh no. Another uh, thing. <laughs> what now? Oh no, not your stories. Not one of your stories. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I've, I'm crossing the podcast streams from my view podcast. Cause I talked about this briefly about how it came out that Whoopi Goldberg was in serious contention to host this year until she made her, uh, uh... Re- remark on the view about how the Holocaust isn't about, wasn't about race and was suspended for two weeks. And I then... mean, well, they, they, they probably did the right thing to pull the plug on that. Oh, definitely. But it's one of those, I mean, it was one of those things to where, like, solo years, host or to, to solo host, apparently. Yes. Okay. They had offered it to, the word is that they had offered it to Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez, which would have been a really kind of cool idea. And they. And I thought I heard it was Steve Martin and Martin Short that said no. Well, somebody said they couldn't schedule it. Like, again, because it's so late in the game, like, I'm surprised trying to wrangle exactly. three hosts. Uh, you know, this is why we ended up with three hosts who don't really have a whole lot of relationship to one another, because the idea of trying to wrangle schedules for people who were you know for a specific three people would have been very very difficult but anyway so the what ifs of this oscars uh ceremony are already going to be probably better than what we end up getting but i had for years been like bring whoopi back bring whoopi back she's an underrated oscar host she's better than you remember and and to find out that that was in the works and then she shot herself in the foot by making the most unnecessary comment like i again somebody who watches the view for a living watching that segment like you she really like it was a full-on interjection kind of non sequitur and i was just like why why did you say that so stupid (sighs) anyway do we have any other oscar rumors to talk about besides who is possibly unvaccinated oh i mean that's the biggest of them all right i guess uh trying to figure out who this okay but a lot of the people that uh, some people have thrown around i mean a lot of the names it's like i don't understand the difference that the academy is doing of if you are a nominee you have to be vaccinated but if you're a presenter or a performer you don't so like what's What's the difference? Like, those uh, unless people they're are all interacting. Right. Unless they're put seating these people in separate areas and, you yeah, know, Yeah, are you telling me Van Morrison is just going to show up to sing and then leave? Oh, I mean, I believe that Van Morrison is going to perform from, like, the rooftop of the, you know, Roosevelt Hotel or whatever. And so, I mean, the, the, what, the way they've been going with musical performances lately, where they sort of are, I would... Not be surprised if one or more of them are pre-recorded like they were last year. And so I know, like, Van Morrison's the most vile of the uh, anti-vaxxers, and the one is sort of the easiest target because of that. But, like, I don't think he's going to be the one who's going to be, like, mingling with other people. Like, it's this, you know, whichever one of last year's four winners, which was, like, they that was a weird little blind item. It's just, like, one of last year's winners is unvaccinated. It's like, try and guess who. So... 
And Anthony Hopkins didn't show up when he won, so I kind of don't expect him to show up now just to present something. So now it's like narrowed down to, and uh, I don't really expect uh, Yu Junyan f- to be there either if there are tr- any kind of COVID concerns risks. and travel restrictions yeah. and risks and anything like that. So we basically narrowed it down to Francis McDormand or Daniel Kaluuya, like flip a coin, try and well, figure it out. and everybody trying to say that Francis McDormand is definitely vaccinated because she participated in New York Film Festival. Like, okay, that like I, I don't know. We like there. There's rumors about other people who participated in film festivals that yes are rumored to not be vaccinated. So I'm less convinced about Francis McDormand than other people. I don't know if I'm convinced in any way about Francis McDormand, but I like I don't think it's out of the question that she would be vaccinated. Nor do I think it's out of the question that Daniel Kaluuya wouldn't be just because he's younger. So I don't really, I don't know. I don't know where to go with it. All of a sudden now we are, uh, but. But Jennifer Aniston's running around Pasadena trying to confirm or deny <laughs> stories that we have heard in the ether. Various rumors. Yes. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. We're here to talk about the Adele music video for Rumor <laughs> I was sort of expecting you to open with, like, a, you know, a line from uh, from the Adele song. Yeah. Uh, like saying that uh, I'm here, as always, with uh, Bless His Soul, He's Got His Head in the Clouds, Joe Reed. Yeah, basically. basically. Basically, that's what I was expecting. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I uh, I am new, not new year, new me, but maybe I'm maybe I'm turning a leaf. You were the one who started with some song lyrics earlier, so like we'll, true. we'll, we'll change hats, you know. It's true. It's true. Me and my uh, boomer references bringing uh, Mrs. Robinson into this whole discussion. We're here to talk about the most. Uh, batshit movie we've talked about in a while it's a movie that like could absolutely avoid you know making the audience think of incest and says you know what no let let let's try to bring some comedy out of potential uh, incest let's also then bring it up again later on in the movie as a after we've already let it after we've set it settled that issue and settled it away it's one of i mean we'll talk about it as we go along, but it's one of those movies that you sometimes you see a movie that like there was a good idea here and it kind of got bungled in the execution. I I, agree, I think though, there I is, wonder if we think it's the same idea that is interesting about this. I movie. don't think there's a good idea at the center of this. I think there's a very very bad idea at the center of this that has <laughs> on its margins. Every once in a while, I'll see like there's a line in there that I'm like, oh, I like that line. Maybe use it in a better movie. The thing at the end where she and Ruffalo get back together and uh, she says, I don't need. Uh, I don't need to be with you, but I want to be with you. Like I'm like that's a good line in a better romance. Like I would that would be a really kind of effective line. The the, the I think um, there's some thematic stuff that's interesting too for like sure. the idea that her character is like I'm so different from my family. I don't feel connected to my family. Yes. Surely there's some other like family that's my real fan like there's there that's an interesting idea especially for like a movie that was released christmas day you know when like people talked about knives out was the movie that people saw to get away from their like super conservative families yeah that's a good point that's a good point you're right that's an interesting kind of concept i just think the 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 central nugget of this which is 
Uh, what if the graduate <laughs> what if the graduate was real but also even that is like that wouldn't be so bad what if the graduate is real so therefore i am going to follow down i jennifer aniston i'm going to follow down the rabbit hole of my family's sordid history and meet this person who in my mind i have built up as maybe this guy is my father and then the second you find out that he's the second that he tells you essentially that he couldn't be that switch flips because to of testicular into, trauma right blunt testicular <laughs> trauma um that she felt like that she tumbles into bed with him like the whole thing falls apart incredibly quickly you have set your audience up to loathe this central romantic dalliance you have in your movie because you've set the audience up with the expectation for so long that maybe he's her dad so like i can't i can't imagine anybody watching this movie and being like, oh, I hope they hook up. Like, I hope these two, like, get together. Like, no. If they get it's... away with anything, which I think they get away with nothing. But, yeah. like, if there's even the inkling of people giving it a moment's thought, it's because they cast Kevin Costner. Like, maybe not in 2005 when this movie came out, but maybe in, like, 1995 or, like, 1990. If well... you said to, uh, you know an audience who was attracted to men uh if you thought for a second kevin costner was your father but then it proved to not be true would you still then consider having sex with him there might be a lot of people that would say yes he's, he he chris, had a time as a hunky actor chris don't bring family dick into this whole thing like i really oh don't... no 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 sir how dare you i did do um that. the interesting thing is this movie, well, this movie comes in the same year as Better Movies for a few of its co-stars. Kevin Costner, right. this is the same year that he did The Upside of Anger, which is, I think, his last need, great we, role. We 1,000% still need to do that. Still I think need we've been to do that. we need to do that movie since the beginning of time. Uh, it's not a bit It's not a bit where we keep saying we're going to do it and not doing it. It's not Matt Damon on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever. Like, we are, we are going to do it at some point. But also, this is the same year as the movie we have covered before, which is Shirley MacLaine in, in her shoes. And it's interesting to pull her. Her characters have situationally kind of a lot of similarities. They're both grandmothers to grandmothers of two da- uh, granddaughters who are the central, one of whom is the central focus of the movie in this case, um, who have a a daughter who has since passed away and remain in kind of a, this one, it's less of a contentious relationship with the son-in-law, but they don't seem, there's a little bit of like an arm's length thing there between them. And in this case, she is... um, She's not, well, like she's kind of she's not really horny grandma. She's just sort of like uh salty, sophisticated, don't call me grandma. I told you to never say that word around me kind of a person. She has a punchline about putting on a pot of bourbon. Yes. Um whereas in in her shoes she's more of a Florida retirement home, you know, good-hearted, kind, you know, less she the doesn't get out much. The edges are for your benefit, not for an audience laugh line. Right, right. And in her, uh, and and I think we all universally like in her shoes better. Lord knows, I love a Shirley MacLaine performance, no matter what. But she's the movie lets her down. But I also don't necessarily think she's. It's not like this is this she's great the best sort thing of about like the movie. she is, but it's not like I'm. I'm not 
I'm not putting this on a list of like great performances and bad movies or anything like that. So nobody's good in this movie is the problem. I feel bad for kind of everybody. Aniston's character is a terrible written character. Ruffalo is it's C, although Ruffalo has a couple good moments actually. Um, There's moments where I was like, he added that line. He like ad-libbed some stuff to make it seem like more fun or make it seem like he and Aniston have chemistry, which I really don't think they do. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, but he has some some life to him. There's the moment in the bathroom when she's telling him the whole story. <laughs> the about airplane the bathroom? No. Uh, well, <laughs> no, we'll not get there. that we'll one. Get there. Um, no, where uh, she's explaining to him that she's sort of surmised that her family are the Robinsons. And, and how did I never, how, how did I never know about this before? And he just very tossed off goes, well, mo- most of all, you have to hide it from the kids. Cuckoo. And then McLean like opens the, the door into him, which is sort of slapsticky, but I'm like, that's good line delivery on, on Ruffalo's part. Like, um, but I feel bad for him. I feel bad for Jenkins in this movie. Although Jenkins is on a vibe that I, generally like which is sort of affably clueless dad mina suvari is kind of at sea in this movie you can see a better a better movie would have made her more sort of central to aniston's character instead of kind of springing her on the movie last minute right it's just not very good and we find out (laughs) in researching the movie there are reasons why uh (laughs) why it's such a mess yeah um and we'll get into that probably after the plot description but there's a lot more there's a lot more mess behind the scenes of this movie than we realized at the time or than yeah, i realized and, at the time there were uh, like articles think... about it and whatnot but yeah well i i i want to talk about it further because like i was surprised and maybe it's that i forgot but like there wasn't an air of when this movie re- was released that it was tainted or anything there wasn't, which is surprising because again, I like there's a New York Times article at the time that is like so it was Ted Griffin just release. got fired. Yeah, it was like right after I'll read some excerpts from it once we're on the other side of the plot description because it's surprising how candid there were like there were uh, like anonymous sources, but like people were, you know, telling tales out of school and whatnot. And the fact that the Times was comfortable running with the story makes it feel like there was I feel like Ted Griffin was on the wrong side of people with some significant clout in the industry who <laughs> uh, who were all sort of getting together and sort of telling their side of the story, which is interesting. Although I did find an interview where he talks a little bit about it. He doesn't really get specific, but for, between that Times article and what he says, I think I was able to sort of piece together what I assume was the deal, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Okay. Well, let's get into the plot description then uh, so that we can get into it. Once again, we are here to talk about Rumor Has It, uh, directed by one Rob Reiner, written and I guess in part directed by Ted Griffin. I imagine none of his directed footage is in the final movie. Yeah, they. Uh, from what I understood, they basically started over. <laughs> well, I mean, he recast a bunch of people. Yeah, yes. Um. Starring Jennifer Aniston, Kevin Costner, Mark Ruffalo, Shirley MacLaine, Richard Jenkins, Christopher McDonald, Kathy Bates in a caftan and mimosa, uh, George Hamilton as George Hamilton, Mina Suvari and Mike Vogel. The movie opened wide Christmas Day of 2005. It sure did. We'll talk about that, too. 
Mr. Robinson hyphen it read. <laughs> yes. Are you ready to give a 60 second plot description? Sure. Why not? I'll go with it. Yes. All right. Your 60 second plot description for rumor has it starts now. All right. Jennifer Aniston is Sarah. She's uh, flying to Pasadena with her fiance, Jeff. She's sort of got a little bit of cold feet, obviously, about uh, marrying him. And he's starting to get a little concerned. She's going to Pasadena for her sister's wedding. Uh, her sister is a lot more into the idea of getting married. Uh, her grandmother is Shirley MacLaine. She finds out through a series of sort of convoluted whatever that her late mother and this dalliance that she had before she got married were the basis for the novel that The Graduate was based on. So Sarah goes digging seconds. into finding this guy whose name is Bo Burrows. He's uh, played by Kevin Costner. She initially thinks he's her dad. And then she finds out that he had blunt testicular trauma, so he couldn't be her dad. So instead, she tumbles into bed with him that night in San Francisco. She has a whole weekend with him. Her fiancé finds out there's a whole problem. Everybody goes back to Pasadena. The sister is having a crisis about going to Belize for her honeymoon. And... Uh, Sarah finally works out that she's in love with Ruffalo and she wants to marry him and Bo Burrows goes away and flies a plane somewhere, and that's I guess, time. as rich people do. I don't know. I don't think I left out anything too particularly important. I think the movie definitely tries really hard to be like, but it's Kevin Costner. He takes her in a plane that he flies. You would have sex with him, right? The problem with this movie at its core is... You don't really want to see her with him. You don't really necessarily want to see her with Ruffalo either. There's no chemistry there. And the, the if, if there's some chemistry with her and Costner, situationally, you're sort of repulsed by it. And most of these situations in a movie, I'm like, well, I just want this woman to maybe like be alone for a while and understand herself and like and and exactly. just you know be okay with her. But even in this movie, I'm like, I don't necessarily care about Sarah. I don't necessarily care about Jennifer Aniston's character en- enough. To... Yeah, she's probably making a bad decision no matter what because she seems like kind of a mess and not an interesting one it's just like she seems like she'd be a chore to know in real life like honestly she does <laughs> i kind of normally i'm not my sympathies in these situations very rarely go to the guy in this situation but i kind of am like run and don't look back mark ruffalo <laughs> like just... there's also nothing wrong with that though like if, if right. it's a well-written character it can right. still make for a good romantic comedy totally like, sally and when harry met sally is a chore to know in real yes. life yes Julia yes. Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding is a chore to know in real life. But that's but I think the part difference... of what makes their character arcs interesting. Like, all she really has to do in this movie is have one conversation with her sister. Yes. And yeah. I guess a conversation with her dad. She has to, like, listen to her dad be like, no, your mom loved me and chose me. And it's like, okay. Right. Yes. Um, and I think... Ultimately, because Reiner is brought in as a director, you have those sort of rom-com expectations because of the What Harry Met Sally of it all. And there is that promise of this sort of difficult, not necessarily flighty, but just sort of like doesn't know what she wants a female main character and making her somebody who you want to see end up with the guy at the end. And... This movie doesn't do that. It's ultimately not a Rob Reiner movie at all. And it was interesting sort of looking at his filmography and being like, oh, this was probably one of his, like, around the time when he was, like, stopped 
making good movies. And then I'm looking at his filmography and I'm like, his last good movie might be the American president in 1995. Like I know James Woods, James Woods got the Oscar nomination for ghosts of Mississippi. And so that movie wasn't necessarily a disaster or anything, but like, it's not like anybody in 2022 is being like, I should watch ghosts of Mississippi. Like nobody has ever. It was seen as a disappointment at the time because I think it had higher expectations. Because, like, that's still in the afterglow of um, A Few Good Men. Totally. Totally. It's less than, like, a decade removed from that. Well, I mean, his his 80s were kind of this uninterrupted string of hits where it's like, this is Spinal Tap 84, The Sure Thing 85, which was like, you know, this small little rom-com, but was, like, fine. Stand By Me 86, huge, huge hit. Princess Bride, 87, Enduring Classic. When Harry Met Sally, Enduring Classic. Misery, Enduring Classic. And Kathy Bates wins the Oscar. A Few Good Men basically turned me into the monster you see here today. Um, (laughs) North is then the disaster, but almost like... Famous disaster. Famous disaster, but you would have to be... You can't get that kind of disaster unless you're a director who who has come off of like a decade of uninterrupted hits, right? Exactly. And, and then rebounds from that disaster the very next year with the American president, which is a cable TV staple. Like that is a you're flipping the channels and you find the American president like settle in. Uh, you're you're there. You will be the watching next. at least a half an hour of the American president. If you exactly. Exactly. Catch it in passing. Such a charming movie. And then the the cliff she she drops out from under where it's. Ghost of Mississippi, 96. The Story of Us, 99. The most anonymous uh, major release love story. Well, I'd say the most anonymous, but like, get ready for the next 20 years. The next one. Um, Alex and Emma, 2003. Kate Hudson, a brunette Kate Hudson, which is just, that's a bad idea in general. Um, And Luke Wilson. Based on the poster, that's a movie about Kate Hudson and uh, Luke Wilson staring at the moon. What what is yeah. the central uh, rom com concept of Alex and Emma? I'll let you know the second I see it. I okay. will absolutely <laughs> text you and let you know. Um, rumor has it is the next one after that, and then the bucket list, which is which is also a movie we have covered on this podcast before, is oh seven. Was a big hit. Canonically, a great movie because it made the National Board of Review top ten. So I don't know what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> and then it's after the bucket list, and we must have talked about this when we did that podcast well, because like. We did the bucket list a while ago. I feel like we did that at the very beginning of the pandemic. I think that's right. But he's actually directed an incredible amount of movies and none of which have you seen. We, I must have said at the time that uh, past guest of the podcast, uh, Rob Shear and I did see, and so it goes in a theater, um, uh, stoned our stoned off our asses because that was probably the only way we were going to uh, (laughs) do that. Um, I remember virtually nothing about it other than the fact that it starred Michael Douglas and Diane Keaton. But he did a movie called Flipped in 2010 that is, according to the poster, about two people sitting on a tree branch. Uh, he did something called The Magic of Belle Isle with Morgan Freeman. And so it goes, like I said, with Diane Keaton and Michael Douglas. Something called Being Charlie with Nick Robinson and Common. All right. Uh, LBJ, which played Tiff, I remember the one year, and I had this fleeting, chaotic thought of like, 
should I see LBJ? Should I see the Rob Reiner movie? And then literally like looked at IMDb and looked at the like litany of past Rob Reiner movies from the teens. And I was just like, well, no, I shouldn't. Like, that's a terrible idea. Uh, Woody Harrelson as uh, Lyndon Johnson in that. And then his most recent film that he directed and starred in, by the way, uh, was called Shock and Awe. And it was about the U.S. journalists fighting to get to the truth in the lead-up to the uh, American invasion of Iraq in 2003, starring Woody Harrelson, Rob Reiner, James Marsden, and Tommy Lee Jones. And again, if anybody saw that movie, much less in a theater, even if you saw it wherever, I would be fascinated, but have a (laughs) lot of questions. I would have a lot of questions for you. I'm sure some of our listeners' dads have seen it. I mean, it does sort of seem like that thing. You know, it's, my, I've, I've set up my parents on my Netflix in the last few years. And it took them a while. To, they are creatures of habit. They are, you know, cable TV people. We just are now weaning them onto YouTube TV. They just cut the cord. And uh, we're in the transition period. And we're all going to get through it. And we're all going to be fine. Um, but they're just now sort of getting into kind of delving into Netflix. I've sort of created a profile for them and keep adding things onto whatever uh, recommendations for And you creep what they're watching? Uh, my, my recommendations for my parents have always been a hilarious uh, funhouse carnival of uh, thwarted expectations. They never like what I think they're going to like, and they end up liking things that I never thought they would like. It's so strange. But so they don't really, like, they're not plugged into the same things that I'm plugged into. So like, what do they care if nobody's heard of this movie shock and awe it's there, it's in front of them. They read the description. They're interested in it. They click, they watch it. And so everyone's going back and talking to my parents about what they watch on TV is this. Do they often mention things to you that you have truly never heard of? Yes. But then it's stuff that I've definitely heard of and would have like, my mom uh, was talking to me about watching the entirety of The Night Before, the Riz Ahmed uh, HBO miniseries. I didn't even watch all of The Night Before. That I would never have recommended. And then I said after, I was like, did you like it? And she was like, well, it was horribly violent. I'm like, yeah, it was. <laughs> and <laughs> I wouldn't have kind of pegged that for you. Um, this sort of is part and parcel of the thing I said a few weeks ago about how my dad was telling me how much... Uh, I don't know if I would say how much he loved The Lobster, but he watched all of The Lobster and was intrigued by it, for sure. Uh, my mom watched uh, all of uh, the Tony Collette Merritt Weaver uh, miniseries on Netflix. Which is supposed to be great. It was called Unbelievable. was fantastic. But it's about, like, a rape investigation. Like, that's not... the. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that my mom would go for something that grim. So... Don't like, you think our parents are a little more desensitized to things like that, though, because they watch, like, nothing but Law & Order SVU? That's my dad. My mom, though, watches nothing but, like, MSNBC, which is, like, desensitization in a different way, so... All my mom watches is, like, Law & Order and truly every costume drama the BBC has ever produced, because uh, she'll send yes. me things like, have you heard of this? It was really wonderful. And I'm like... No, what is it? And I look it up, and it's just, like, two sisters in a bonnet. My parents together will watch uh, PBS stuff like, um, uh, oh, what's the one? It's all these, like, sort of, like, what small English town solving mysteries or whatever. And then also, like, Call the Midwife or whatever, which I guess is pretty, you know, harrowing and whatnot. Um, But... 
like Last Tango in Halifax and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, but even in that, I'm just like, oh, so you obviously watch like Grantchester. And they're like, no, we don't like Grantchester. I'm like, well, then I don't know. I genuinely don't. Like, whatever. <laughs> like, watch what you want and come talk to me about it later. I don't know. So, uh, they I'm just sure. They probably have to come on things themselves. They don't really like seek something out on a recommendation. It just has to be sitting in front of them. And yes. And yet sometimes, like, remember when we saw Truth at TIFF and I'm like, my parents are going to fucking love this movie. Well, that I was right about. I didn't about. see Truth with you. I wasn't oh. at TIFF then. Oh, oh, okay. Well, then when I saw uh, Truth at TIFF, that was my dominant, that's the thing I basically, that was my review of that movie. It's just like, my parents are going to love it. And it turned out that they did. So, okay. Um, that one worked. Anyway, what was I talking about? Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner's uh, mom and dad movies, essentially. Okay, but I feel like Rob Reiner, except for the past, you know, 20 years, obviously, but like that core early group of Rob Reiner movies, like, I'm sure I said this during our Bucket List episode, but like, Rob Reiner probably does deserve more credit for those movies. I know that a lot of people like relay those down to the screenplay or like Spinal Tap, you know, Christopher Guest is the one that gets the credit for those for that movie but you know like he did shepherd in some really just like kind of unclockable movies um but at the same time i think why he doesn't is because like a lot of those movies are very different even the comedies are not the same type of movie so like he does have this kind of anonymous directorial Vibe. Well, he it is as you you sort of mentioned it. It's the fact that he tends to direct movies by screenwriters with very signature styles and filmographies. Where like this is Spinal Tap is very Christopher Guest. Uh, William Goldman doesn't necessarily have like a writerly signature, but like he's so he's a famous screenwriter, and he you know the fact that he wrote the screenplays for The Princess Bride and Misery, you feel like there are, you know, strong, a strong hand of the writer in those. Obviously, Misery and Stand By Me are both Stephen King adaptations, and, like, that becomes sort of the signature of that. A Few Good Men and The American President are both Sorkin scripts. That's a a very heavy signature when Harry Met Sally is Nora Ephron, like, a, a genre unto herself. So... Yeah, it let becomes less the Rob Reiner stamp than it is the writers of those movies, which mm-hmm. sort of then brings us to the Ted Griffin of it all, with rumor has it. So how familiar were you with Ted Griffin as a writer before coming to this movie? The thing is, like, I didn't have any name recognition to him, but then when you look at his actual film credits and it's kind of really varied because like there's other bombs in there like ravenous, which I know has its fans now, but was a huge failure on release. But then you also have these massive hits like um, oceans 11 and Soderbergh was apparently an EP on this movie and was part of Ted Griffin's firing. Yes. Um, and then Matchstick Men, which is uh, Ridley Scott. I'd love uh, to talk about that movie. Rumor has it he he writes one or co-writes, I guess, one episode of The Shield, and then which I think puts him enough in the FX pipeline that uh, they let him do create Terriers, which is this very kind of shaggy 
San Diego public, uh, uh, private eyes, rather, uh, Donald Logue and Michael Raymond James play them. And it's as much about sort of like their friendship as the, they ends up, you know, they're solving little cases. It's sort of quasi procedural, but also there's at least one sort of overarching case that they keep trying to sort of pick away at. And it's very vibesy. It was very kind of, uh laid back and fun and it was just one of those shows that again nobody watched it but the people who did were really really sad <laughs> that it got canceled and uh oh and he also wrote uh co-wrote killers which was the ashton kutcher Catherine heigl movie which i've not seen so i can't really speak to i haven't either that but, but it i think it was like one of those I, I critically received very poorly but like middling box office it was a summer release right like yeah i don't think yes. it bombed but it wasn't a hit so there's this interview uh sort of three-part interview on uh youtube with him from some sort of thing or another and uh sort of which is where i got a little bit of the uh, tidbits about rumor has it from him but he talks about how the writer friends that he sort of uh, is friends with and kind of bounces ideas off each other and they read each other's work and, and, you know, give each other helpful critique and that kind of stuff. It's him, uh, Scott Frank, who wrote, uh, the out of sight script and also, uh, annoyed everybody at the Emmys this past year by talking a lot about the Queen's Gambit. Everybody got so mad at somebody for accepting an award, uh, apparently. You um, can even see his cast members, though, behind him, like looking at each other, like, what the fuck? <laughs> yes. Okay. Like, Yes. I I got a little bit annoyed where it was just like, what are you watching an award show for then? Like, let people fucking accept awards. Let people go on and on. Like, no, I want to see I want to see crazy people at award shows, too. So like, whatever. So anyway, uh, Scott Frank and then Richard Legravenes, who, among other things, um, was a uh, co-writer on uh, well, wrote. Uh, the mirror has two faces. The movie you and Katie and I all watched separately. I've <laughs> been losing this our week. minds about all. Like it's been our like comfort throughout the past week and a half. Um, I want to um, look up his filmography really quickly though, just because like I think he's Water one of those. Water for elephants. Wrote Water for elephants was a. He has a really wild like writer directorial career. I'm pretty sure. P.S. I love you. The last five years. He also had a. Um, must have been uncredited, uh, but I remember Julia Roberts thanks him in her uh, acceptance speech for Aaron Brockovich. And even though Susanna Grant wrote that script, I think he must have had some sort of hand in it because she thanked him. Um, Mirror Has Two Faces, The Horse Whisperer, Living Out Loud, which he also directed. Um, Fantasy Dream Sequence with Holly Hunter. Yes. I like that movie a lot. That was going around on Twitter this week for whatever reason. Um, really? The, the, choreographed, I'm, the choreographed dance moment. I'm, from I'm less and less online, so I, I must have missed that. But the, it's fabulous. The, the Hillary Swank double, which he wrote and directed, um, Freedom Writers and P.S. I Love You. Uh, uncredited on Conviction. Yes, Water for Elephants. Oh my god, my beloved Beautiful Creatures. Uh, supernatural teen romance, Beautiful Creatures. Still gotta see Beautiful Creatures. And then he directed the the uh, film adaptation of the last five years, which I also saw at Toronto. So, like, interesting, like, but my point was, in bringing up those writers, was it's this sort of class of professional writers who, like, yes, sometimes direct their own stuff, but are mostly just kind of lifers 
in this Hollywood pipeline of script writing. And sometimes there are writers who we think of as these sort of like writer directors. Everything's a passion project. P.T. Anderson and Wes Anderson and like stuff where like they are their own brand. And then there are these writers who feel more punch clocky, which is not to devalue mm-hmm. their work at all. But in no, in I mean, co- Ted Levine gave us the script for Ocean's Eleven. And so I think in a Hollywood economy that is sort of squeezing out that middle class, um, you'll see sort of like less and less of this. But Ted Griffin writing the screenplay solo, I'm pretty sure, has a solo screenplay credit for Ocean's Eleven. And that's like, I mean, our, our, you know, friends at Blank Check talk about like the Guarantor movie, like the movie that sort of like, you know, uh, gets you the next several phases of your career sort of like nails it down like that's it for him uh and so rumor has it is kind of the passion project for him he's originally from pasadena this is not like his story but there is even something i think in his life about someone in his family knew people who it was said was were sort of like part of the inspiration for it's not 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 like one story like in this but i think you can see the where he would have like gotten this idea for this movie from uh that's why there's so much like only in Pasadena stuff about this movie yeah which I... like it, it you can definitely te- it it feels like they brought in some uncredited writers to like make it just more rom-commy but it definitely feels like Rob Reiner is ushering in someone else's vision, but like none of what their actual vision is. Well, they wouldn't have had time to rewrite it because Ted Griffin had shot three weeks worth of film and then they brought in Rob Reiner. So unless they wanted to throw the whole thing in to turn around and lose all the stars that they had, they basically had to go with Griffin's script mostly as it was. But it feels like people just trying their best to make it work. And, like, I I would have a hard time believing that they didn't, like, tweak some stuff on set. But there was only probably so much that could get overhauled because they had to just... Right, right. Like, they they weren't, like, doing plot changes or things like that. You know, like, you have... You know, you have like sets secured and like right. location secured, etc. Blah, blah blah blah. So I want to, but sorry, go it, ahead. It it does feel like it's a compromised type of comedic take in that the movie wants to be about like Pasadena culture, yes, and like a whole vibe that it, it's in the hands of a director who doesn't really uh, have a handle on creating that, you know, it's more about the lore of the graduate and it's more about this kind of absurd, unbiable, you know, concept. Yeah. So I'm, I brought up this, uh, this times article from August of 2004. So the, the byline on this, Oh, it's Ann Thompson. That's interesting. Oh, fascinating. Um, yes. So, a uh, New York Times article, August 25th, 2004, uh, reports that on August 6th, Warner Brothers booted Ted Griffin as director of his original story inspired by the, uh, the 1967 movie The Graduate. Um, goes on to talk about how rare that is to actually remove a director midstream after they've started filming. He was, as I said, three weeks into filming. They were able to keep the stars of the movie, which at that point were Aniston, McLean, uh, Kevin Costner. They recast uh, Charlie Hunnam 
with Mike Vogel. They recast Leslie Ann Warren with Kathy Bates. They recast, um, I'm not sure who Greta Skaki was supposed to be, but she was also maybe, maybe the a sister. No, because Mina Suvari was was the one one of the ones that that, that got kept. Uh, Christopher McDonald was also a recast. He was uh, originally played by uh, somebody named Tony Bill. Um, so so might- whatever this like dinner that she goes to with Bo Burrows, yes, reshot. I imagine so. Yes. Well, yeah. From what I understand, pretty much everything had been reshot. Let me find the part where they uh, talk about that. Um, but so there was a lot of speculation at the time about what exactly was the problem. He had fired Ed Lockman as cinematographer previous to uh, Griffin had fired uh, Ed Lockman, which was a warning sign. Griffin being a first time director, this uh, Ann Thompson's article sort of mentions that like Ed Lockman was known kind of as a first time director whisperer. He had, uh, uh, done the cinematography for the virgin suicides and sofia coppola and apparently he was sort of known for being the 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 cinematographer you hire for a first-time director to sort of like help them you know get the ropes of it essentially Mm -hmm. and griffin had fired him uh there were initial rumors that it was costner who had a problem with him and that that was the reason and then that got debunked uh because Costner hadn't started filming his scenes yet, and apparently also had like how lent... though because those characters that got replaced are all scenes with him. Well, I imagine that there were some delays, and I think those delays then made uh, maybe those some people, people unavailable. unavailable or something. I'm not sure, um, but apparently that was the story that and that Costner had essentially like lent out his house for Ted Griffin to stay in for a little bit after the fact. So like that kind of shot that down. There were speculation that it was Shirley MacLaine who had the problem, and then Shirley MacLaine went on the record and was just like, "I had no problem with him." She was like, "You know, these kind of things happen, but like I." Don't have any negative uh, feelings about him. Uh, so it did seem like some of the, that Jennifer Aniston apparently had, was like dissatisfied with the look of the film or something and how it was going on. And the other side of it was well, the movie as it stands now looks like shit. Yes, so. yes, exactly. Um, but so apparently another thing was so Soderbergh is producer on this, and this was after. Uh, Ocean's Eleven, obviously, and then so apparently, after they made Ocean's Eleven, what year was Ocean's Twelve? Was Ocean's Twelve twenty the two thousand four? Maybe. So apparently, they had wanted Griffin to do the script for Ocean's Twelve. He at that point was in some degree of development on Rumor Has It. Rumor has it's the project that he cares about, and he essentially is just like, I don't want to do Ocean's 12, I want to do this one. And so there was rumored to be some that that sort of like drove something of a wedge between him and Soderbergh, and that Soderbergh was the one who like did the firing. Like Soderbergh was the one who like called Griffin into his office and fired him. And then so from this interview that I saw with Ted Griffin after the fact, although it seemed like uh, it wasn't too long after the movie, but he sort of, he doesn't really talk in specifics, but he talks about how there was a degree of protection for him that he thought was there on the film that wasn't there. 
And that seemed to me to be referring to Soderbergh. And so, and so uh, mm. later in this conversation, the interviewer is like, um, you know, maybe if, you know, sometimes you want to have a director, he's because they're, they're all talking in abstracts. And the guy was like, well, maybe if Ridley Scott, who you had worked with on Matchstick Men, had been a producer on the movie, he would have looked out for you. And, and, uh, <laughs> Ted, and Ted Griffin goes, well, that's kind of what I thought the situation was on this movie, but it was with a different director. And then he leaves it at that. He never says Soderbergh, but like, I mean, at that point, process of elimination, it's not Antonia Bird. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Um, well, but my thing is, I thought, to my understanding, the movie was so behind schedule. That was a big in those one. First yes. few weeks. Yes. That if Soderbergh's a producer and like a movie goes that off the rails as soon as it starts filming, basically. Yeah. That makes sense that he fired him. And it's not, you know, you've been backstabbed. It's that, you know, you couldn't. Get the fucking movie together. I don't know. But anyway, this this article does the linked... New York Times piece describe the filming as like that behind schedule. It does. It remi- it, it it describes the filming as being quickly, sort of quickly behind schedule, uh, in, within just a few weeks. And but also again describes this uh, rumored tension between Soderbergh and Griffin because of Ocean's Twelve, and also uh, rumored. Uh, not necessarily tension with Jennifer Aniston, but that Jennifer Aniston was not uh, reportedly not happy with how things were going. So that article is linked to off of the rumor has it Wikipedia page. If anybody wants to go and check that out, it's uh, pretty illuminating again for an article written while that was going on. And in the times, like sometimes you would almost like you'd expect to see it in like, you know, deadline or even like one of the trade papers or something like that. But the fact that it was Mm -hmm. in the times was, uh, was interesting to me. Uh, but anyway, so Reiner gets brought on, and we get the movie that we get, which is really bad. <laughs> so, it, I mean, like, yeah, for uh, a lot of the reasons that we've also said, it's also just like, I don't understand these people signing on for it. Can you think of other examples of movies that are like, it feels like more something we do now. That it's borrowing on the nostalgia of some cultural flashpoint. I almost feel like, um, I wonder if Ted Griffin's vision for this was less, you know, centered fully on, like, The Graduate than it is, you know, Pasadena. But, like, it goes really hard on The Graduate in a way that's not satisfying you know it doesn't really do uh, i think maybe aside from shirley mcclain's performance and i do think she's good in the movie um it doesn't really actually do anything with any with that of the graduate it certainly doesn't try to borrow its visual style it doesn't you know right right its references are really just down to those three relationships at the center of it but not really it's pretty what that movie was satirizing well, and even at the beginning of the movie where it sort of talks about this little piece of history and then you get these moments where like people around town are gossiping about it and like, who could it be? And, and you know, I heard it was such and such, but such and such didn't have a daughter. And the one woman's just like, yeah, but he, she had a homosexual son. And, uh, uh, all these sort of like gossipy uh, uh, society ladies in Pasadena society. And yeah, it. That all felt like decently winky, but if but it also felt like it was setting up a story that was going to be as much about the kind of um, 
you know, the rumor of it all, right? The the uh, mm-hmm. the Pasadena of it all, because it made it all seem very important. And that ultimately all gets backburnered for this focus on this romance between Aniston and Costner. And maybe that's what got changed or got, like, you know, more of a spotlight on it. Because it's hard to imagine that anybody thought that there was going to be that the audience would be invested in that couple and yet the language of the movie is putting us all in that space where either we're rooting for them or else what are we watching why are we spending so much time in San Francisco with right. their little like you know cliffside uh, brunch or whatever and so the balance of it is all off on top of it's just it's just icky it's super icky yeah we spend as much time with them together as we spent with the idea in our heads that this man could be her father so it's like you can't just even with an actor that many people find very attractive you can't just wipe that from the audience's mind like it, it doesn't work that way you can't wipe it from the audience's mind and because you can't do that then we also then look at her character and be like, how can you wipe that out of your mind so quickly? Like, I can't uh-huh. forget that this was a thing. Why can you switch gears so quickly, isn't it? And and the fact that, again, they bring it up again, like a half hour later into the movie where she meets his son and all of a sudden thinks that he was lying about the blunt testicular whatever, and he actually and could be And then she has to, is- again, explain it to her sister that yes. she's like, no, I didn't, that's not what this, like, it's... It's, it's not as funny as the movie thinks it is. No. No. And uh yeah. There's also this sort of like long anticipated confrontation between Shirley MacLaine and Kevin Costner that isn't as good as the movie needs it to be and I just I I struggle to find I just struggle to find out what the ideal version of this movie was supposed to be. Like, what's the best case scenario of this movie? Because, like, I I just think it's so flawed at its center. Right. I don't know what's appealing, especially to these actors about it, unless there is... Unless, like, unless you went even further with that stuff about The Graduate. And it, like, truly was, like, this kind of riff or yes. tribute to this, like, you know, legendary movie that, like, you know, defined a generation or whatever. Right. But... I don't know. And it almost made me think about Reiner within a certain context of, like, was Reiner for a period chasing, like, Mike Nichols? Mike Nichols. Because Mike Nichols is a director who could do a lot of different things and a lot of different genre. And I think we maybe talk about him more... more in touch with what he's doing today than we might have, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But uh, I don't know. Well, Nichols he is was another a director who could do a lot of things. And of course, The Graduate is the movie that he won his director Oscar for. Yes. Yep. Nichols is another director, though, who was not as the authorial voice didn't come from the scripts, right? Where he could sort of he could direct a movie and not have it feel like, oh, this is a Mike Nichols story, right? Like, Working Girl... Right, like he does uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is, like, one of the greatest plays of all time, and yet the movie still feels like it's 
Mike Nichols's voice coming through as much as Albie's. And and I think he's more successful than Reiner in that regard, in that he's able to take these stories that are like adaptations of plays or books, or like he did his own Sorkin script at one point, although I guess the less said about Charlie Wilson's war, uh, maybe the better. (laughs) But you look at his, you know, uh, Catch-22 based on a novel, Virginia, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf based on a play, um... He so, also worked with Nora Ephron. With Nora though, Ephron that a couple was of times. Yes. Less successful. Less successful, but I think they had a um a stronger creative partnership, maybe. Not that necessarily like Ephron and Reiner didn't, but like she she stayed close to him. Postcards from the Edge is Carrie Fisher's story, right? Um, mm-hmm. The Birdcage is obviously a remake of La Cage à Folle. Primary Colors is very famously based on a book. Closer is is based on a play. And Angels in America is also one of the like most notorious, greatest plays ever written, but it feels as much Mike Nichols as it does Tony Kushner's. Right, right. Yes, that's exactly the, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Is that Nichols? I think is more successful at keeping his signature on something that has primarily as its signature, a, a story that is not his. And so, um, which is not to discredit Rob Reiner and his best stuff, but like, I mean, it's no (laughs) saying you're not as good as Mike Nichols is no slight on anybody because very, very (laughs) few people meet that standard. Um, God, I love Mike Nichols so much. Um, I have this eternal project where I'm, where I want to watch all of the, Mike Nichols movies that I haven't watched and I sort of get back to it in fits and starts. And it's only really a small handful of things at this point. I, uh, in the last couple of years saw carnal knowledge and Biloxi blues for the first time. Uh, I am forever on the precipice of finally watching Wolf. Uh, it, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. Wolf um, is wild. It, it, what, what is, what is bizarre to me is Wolf is not one of the movies well <laughs> that Mike Nichols made while addicted to drugs. Right. <laughs> um right. Um what a what a yet. what a weird movie. Yeah. I did uh, I posted a clip last week on Twitter of uh, just cuz I came across it of uh Shirley MacLaine in Postcards from the Edge, the famous uh uh, my skirt twirled up. It twirled up. Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people, did not lift my guy skirt. Michael. It twirled up. You only remember the bad stuff, don't you? What about the big band that I got to play at that party? Do you remember that? No. You only remember that my skirt accidentally twirled up. And you weren't wearing any underwear. Well. And... Just sort of my continuing bafflement that Meryl got nominated for that and Best Actress, and rightly so. But the fact that Shirley MacLaine, as a former Oscar winner, playing Debbie Reynolds, essentially, in this well-received movie, in this very sort of spotlight role, doesn't get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. it, It never. Do we know how Debbie Reynolds felt about that movie and performance, though? I mean, I thought that they were friends. I thought that she was friends with McLean. 
No, maybe not. I mean, it would make sense. They all, they sort of all traveled in uh, similar circles, right? Weren't they also, remember that TV movie that they made where Debbie Reynolds and Elizabeth Taylor finally co-starred in something and it was called, and it was written by Carrie Fisher. It was called These Old Broads. Hold on a second. Let me look this up. Cause I want to say McLean might have been one of them. It was like Joan Collins, Elizabeth Taylor, Debbie Reynolds. And give me a second. These Old Broads, 2001 made for television movie. Yes, Debbie Reynolds, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Collins, Shirley MacLaine. So, uh, yeah, they were all sort of in the same kind of, you know, um, uh, circles, essentially. But yeah, that that to me, that Shirley MacLaine snub for, uh, for Postcards from the Edge will never make sense. But anyway. I wonder if people, I just wonder if people felt in the way that, you know, Meryl's performance feels more removed from Carrie Fisher herself, but it's also Carrie Fisher authoring it. If it felt, you know, maybe a little untouchable. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Like, people were afraid of slighting Debbie Reynolds. I feel like in the ecosystem, though, Shirley MacLaine had more juice than Debbie Reynolds at that point. So... I suppose that's true. Though what is fascinating about Shirley MacLaine, because like when we're talking about rumor has it's like as far as uh, awards potential that it was seen for, I mean, a lot of it was Shirley MacLaine, but of course it's like The Graduate as well. Um, yes, yes. What's fascinating about Shirley MacLaine is she hasn't been nominated since she won. Right, right. Which is wild. Well, the other thing about the the Postcards from the Edge thing is it's this, the very next year after... Steel Magnolias, where I would also argue that she probably would have deserved a supporting actress nomination. There, it makes a little Uh more sense that it goes to Julia Roberts because she's the ascendant ingenue. And like that makes sense within the Oscars tendencies, right? But like as somebody who has watched that movie a dozen or more times, uh, she's the one I'd nominate. It goes like McLean, Dukakis, Parton, in terms of the supporting roles. Field is obviously your lead. McLean, Dukakis, Parton, Roberts, Hannah. Right? Oh, I love Daryl Hannah, though. I don't not like Daryl Hannah, but I can't rank her above any of the other four. I, I, I also just love that part. Um, that How role. do you rank him? I'm going to put you on the spot. No, that's impossible. You can't make me do that. I just I did. You're going to hang me out to dry? <laughs> You're going to hang me out to dry with these listeners and put me on the on the mark? Like, come on. I can't, okay, the one that I think is in last place, I just can't bring myself to say that it's last place, because all of them are first place in my heart. Oh, you politician. You absolute you politician. make me insert, like, a redacted sound in here, like... You are, like, quite you simply... cannot make me put Dolly Parton in last place for anything. <gasps> All right, you said it. I mean, I was going to call you a pig from hell, but at least you said it. You put yourself out there. Um, listen, I listen. I, everybody I in that movie is great. That's why it's interesting to try and rank them because you're you're ranking best on best. Right. It is. It is unwell and absurd that Sally Field was not nominated for that movie. Anyway, you heard it here, listeners. Chris File thinks Daryl Hannah is better than Dolly Parton, uh, canonically, and in that movie, there we go. That movie. Nope. It's on, it's on they board. are all exceptional. Uh, you the cannot fact that bring the masses to be mad at me. You are a pig from hell. Listen, I I hope Dolly forgives me. 
It is best on best, like you said. Dolly funded the vaccine. That's right. We're all standing here uh, well and uh, with full lung capacity because of Dolly Parton. So, the thing about Dolly and like all of all of the things that she does for like charity work and like for the vaccine, her answer to like people expect her to give some like profound like answer and like she's always just like just a fundamentally good person yeah she's always just like well i thought it was the thing to do to help people and you know we just really need whatever so i was like well why don't i do this and it's just like you know like yeah it's great (sighs) national global treasure (laughs) i can't believe we've gotten all these uh, tangents in this episode about rumor has it i can't believe we don't want to talk about uh uh, the movie, the movie at well, hand here. No, 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 no. We brought up Shirley MacLaine, which is really the thing to talk about with Shirley MacLaine. And I think you kind of talked about how the parallels between this role and the one that you know got further in in her shoes are yes. actually really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that the dead daughter thing in both of them is really interesting, and the fact that she's sort of uh, maintaining this close relationship with closer to maybe one uh, granddaughter than the other, which is really interesting, and I. Do you get the sense in this movie that she has any time for Mina Suvari's character whatsoever? Because I Absolutely kind of Absolutely not. Just Absolutely none. not. Oh, poor Mina Suvari. What Subari. is that character, though? No, nothing. It's a nothing of a character. It's nothing to that family because it's always, it's just like everybody's like, well, I guess she's getting married. Well, I guess she had a mental breakdown. Well, like, it, yeah. Did you, did uh, her fiance look familiar to you at all? Not at all. Okay, he was in that movie Latter Days. Oh no. The, no, 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 no. The no, no. gay Mormon uh explicit sex scene. Whatever. Not necessarily. I I bet you by if I watched it again today by today's standards of what is allowed on television and in film, I would be like, well this is nothing. But like at the time Yeah, back in that time if there was any boot knocking whatsoever, it was considered explicit. Like it was exactly, it was a, an oasis in the desert. It was also, it was from that early an aughts oasis era. oasis in the desert of the Oregon Trail. Basically. Joseph uh, Smith going. It was in that early aughts era of gay-themed rom-coms that would get these sort of cursory, small releases in theater. And they were all terrible. Yes, but watchable. Like, I would say in there, and again, this was, we were desperate for anything. We were really, really, you don't understand it. You people today who, you know, have all of these uh, gay-themed projects out there, you don't understand how much we needed movies like All Over the Guy. Or, um, all right, some of these, like, okay, Broken Hearts Club is not a good movie, and it's yet a movie that I love. And so what are we going to do about that? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> the Edge of Seventeen, the one with, um, oh, Leah Delari is in it. Have you seen that one? Um, yeah, that's the one that takes place at Cedar Point that's not yes! Cedar Point. Right, exactly. Yeah. I think that's a really good movie. I really liked that movie. So uh, anyway, that... Except I think it actually is filmed at Cedar Point. But they pro- can't like say Cedar Point. Right, probably true. Anyway... There's a charm to those movies. Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss, which is not a really good movie and not really my favorite of those, but like that's sort of that era, right? Um, I ended up writing about a lot of those when I was at Decider, and I really, 
again, there's a nostalgia for them, but it's also just like those movies were there for me when like there really were not anything to talk about, anything to sort of watch. That I'm in that like rom com vein, right? Like, if you if you want like gay cinema and queer cinema, it's going to be a little bit more subversive. It's like Todd Haynes's Poison at that time, right? You know? It's things like that, sure. And but if, for comfort watching, if I think I think not much, yes. So yes, we can admit that I was not cool enough at twenty one, twenty two, that age. I should have been a cooler gay guy. I wasn't. I've never been. So. Yeah, Greg Araki stuff came later for me. Todd Haynes stuff came later for me. I was a big old square, and I gravitated to basic stuff. So, you got me, Gal. <laughs> By nature, that wasn't basic. It just wasn't good. <laughs> Fine, yes. I'm not disagreeing with you that it wasn't good. I still liked it. Um, the anyway. first time I really think I saw like a gay sex scene in like an up beat movie was like wet hot american summer and that doesn't count because that's comedy that's comedy gay I sex ar- i would argue that sex scene isn't played as a joke but but that's the joke like, yeah the joke is that it's not played like for for wet hot american summer for that genre of comedy where everything is so arch the joke the the fact that it's not played as a joke is the joke sure anyway <laughs> Not that I disliked it. Like, yeah, it was hot watching Michael Ian Black and Bradley Cooper, like, f- fucking a shed, even by implication. Um, but, yeah, anyway. Let's Before talk about- we move on to the I- IMDb game, we should talk about Jennifer Aniston a little bit, because sure. this comes off the heels of Friends ending. Yes. Friends ended at 04? Uh, yes. Yeah. And I... Uh, it's not. This wasn't the first post Friends movie. The first post Friends movie was also a disaster. It was derailed. Oh God! Which was also, I believe, the first Weinstein Co. movie. Um, Derailed's one of those not. movies. One of those movie titles that you feel like should be on a list of never use these titles in a movie because it too easily lends itself to. Uh, this movie was a disaster headlines uh, too, right? uh, too easily lends itself to a bad headline when it has a poor opening box office exactly movie. exactly yes what's the twist in that movie the twist in that movie is that she's a villain but like there's something else oh yeah it. i've never seen it i forget there's something that's kind of like stupid about it i forget i mean vincent casella's in it so i'm sure like the twist is that like he's hot like that's sort of <laughs> The point of every Vincent Cassell character is just like, I'm a villain, but also you definitely want to fuck me. So, yeah. It was a bumpy post-Friends run for Jennifer Aniston, but she like immediately turns around after this and does Friends with Money. Which we've talked about and we both love. Yes. And love her in it. Yes. Yeah, she's great. uh, Friends with Money is our The Good Girl. I agree. Yes. All right. Which we haven't done the good girl. Maybe we'll eventually do it. I don't know. Why. The one thing I also wanted to talk about was this uh, released on Christmas Day in 2005. And uh, even if this movie wasn't bad, it was going to have a hard time fighting for space because this was one of those years where it was a very back ended 
uh, Oscar season, even though the winner ended up being a movie that had been from technically the year before. But like almost everything else, Brokeback Mountain's a December movie. Munich was a very late movie. One of those like, is Spielberg going to be done with it on time kind of movies. Mm -hmm. Munich releases the same weekend uh, as uh, rumor has it. And on 532 screens outgrosses rumor has it by like $600,000. It's uh, rumor has it. Munich opened the week. Like this was a year that like Christmas was on a Sunday or Monday. Yes. And I think rumor has it opened on the Christmas day. Whereas Munich had the full weekend to make money i see well regardless rumor has it does not do very well other new rumor movies... has it should make more on you know four times the amount of screens though right sure, yeah like yes <laughs> and a um, whole hour less in screen time yeah um this was this a weird christmas at the movies this was the second week of King Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong, the third week of Chronicles of Narnia. Those two movies were still at the top of the charts. Uh, Fun with Dick and Jane, which is a movie that nobody ever thinks about anymore, uh, was top five. Cheaper by the Dozen was new that weekend also, top five. I'm. It's fascinating to me that third week of Memoirs of a Geisha, that's still ranking high. Um, I think that probably platformed, though. Yes, because this was so it, like it, it might have expanded. expanded on Christmas. It was expanding, um, but like Syriana at this point wasn't expanding, and uh, it was in its fifth week of release, and barely. Rumor has it barely outgrosses that that weekend. So I don't know. It's all wild. Brokeback <laughs> Mountain had not yet expanded by this point. That's in the top fifteen. Um, the producers platformed? That's interesting. With the those produ- refuse, it absolutely did. Well, no. <laughs> but like and, I'm su- Which was like a mistake, a full mistake for that movie. Yeah, like I, that's that's surprising to me that it didn't just sort of uh open wide that weekend. Anyway. Did it platform by like only playing the Ziegfeld for a week or something? Maybe. Um it's very possible. But even this in its second week, it's only up to 975 975 screens. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Anyway, uh, but yeah, uh, Munich was new that week. The Ringer, which was the Johnny Knoxville competes in the Special Olympics movie that Jesus like Christ. we all decided to not ever talk about because it was too awful. And um, uh, yeah, Munich was new. Rumor has it. Wolf Creek. I can't imagine you've seen Wolf Creek. It is a... I have seen Wolf Creek. It is scary and nasty and uh, Australian and violent and uh, kind of notoriously. So I remember there was like a big sort of, I mean, not big, whatever, but like contained brouhaha about how violent that movie it's was. A, well, that violent and released on Christmas. It's violent <laughs> yes. without the gore like you feel like the emotional impact of that violence yeah i remember not really being scared by it but like finding it disturbing yeah it's very it, disturbing. it ultimately got lumped into the like torture hostile porn. Yes. like torture porn type of thing even yes. though you really don't see gore right right yeah exactly uh wait i want to go through my notes one more time we talked about steve sandvoss oh uh mike vogel looks a whole mess in this movie and yet i absolutely 100 <laughs> percent would and i don't uh i don't want to take any questions about it at this time That's fine. That's um 
Uh, Pasadena, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the George, that George Hamilton joke is such a weird, it's such an odd Hollywood kind of a joke. of like that, that was the moment where I just wanted to scream at the TV, what the hell is this movie? Yes. Who is this movie for? Because Jennifer Aniston's like, there's that guy over there who looks like George Hamilton. Kevin Costner's like, that is that George is Hamilton. That is George Hamilton. Like, why? Why? Also, I think somewhat timely um, uh, to what's going on, there's a whole thing about Ruffalo trying to make small talk with Richard Jenkins about the Rams leaving Los Angeles. Because at this point, the Rams were in St. Louis. And of course, now the Rams are back in Los Angeles and are Super Bowl champions. So we really have come full circle. So good for Richard Jenkins' character in this movie. He must be very happy right now. That's all. That's we need a we need a like you know shock jock type you know chime or something to all right drop us a sound clip whenever sports come up no i find it charming you can even get sports on our podcast all right we are varied and diverse in terms of what we talk about let's go to imdb game you can mock me you you can mock me at another time i'm not mocking you i i'm saying you can other me for my taste in ephemera another time I love you. I say it with love. Um, <laughs> would you uh, like to explain yeah. what the IMDb game is? Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performance, or acting, sorry, or non-acting credits, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Thus ever was the IMDb game. Fantastic. Are you going to give or guess first this week? I'll give first. All right. All right. So I when I talked about how uh, the last Rob Reiner directed movie that I saw in theaters was And So It Goes oh, no. uh, with stars Michael Douglas and Diane Keaton. They have a romance. It's a whole thing. We've somehow never done Diane Keaton on the IMDb game. So I thought I would uh, correct that right now. So Chris, do it. Um, Annie Hall. Correct. Her Oscar win. Something's Gotta Give. Something's Gotta Give, her last Oscar nomination. The First Wives Club. No, even though it should be. Strike one. Oh, see, that made a lot of money, and like it people did. still watch it. It was um, a big old hit. Interesting. There's going to be something bad on here. Uh, Book Club? No. Even though that was her Shit. most recent hit. All right, two strikes. Your answers are... 1975 and 2005. 2005 is Family Stone. Correct. The Family Stone. Okay, so 75 is before Annie Hall. Yes. So I'm guessing, well, no, wait, is uh, that's neither Godfather. Right. Those were 72 and 74. So it's got to be one of the other Woody Allens. But I don't know which one she's in. Um, it's one I had never heard of. Oh, so it's not like Sleeper. No. I mean, also, I, there are maybe Woody Allen movies that I've never heard of that are well known, and I just sort of missed it. But uh, right, um, it's it is play it um, again, Sam. No. Okay. It's kind of a. Pertinent to current events. 
Interesting. I mean, is it pertinent to current events? Is there a, like, I don't know. Uh, it, it's obviously not the Oscars. It's not, is right. it a war movie? Yeah. Great. Um, is it she Woody won, Allen? She, yes. She won Best Actress at the Faroe Island Film Festival. Ah. Okay. Um, What's... Yeah, I, I really don't think I know what this is. All right. Is. It is a 1975 war comedy called Love and Death. I know that only by title. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that was before Annie Hall, though. Uh, yeah, according to IMDb, it is 1975. I wonder if the release, whether that was a... Because it was a Berlin Film Festival movie. But it looks like it released uh, in New York City in June of 1975 as well. So yeah, There you go. There we go. Yeah, that's, a, that's an odd one. Three kind of uh, somewhat predictable movies for Diane Keaton, and then... A really hard one. So that's so weird. I yes, wouldn't be surprised is. if that changes by the time that this episode airs. Um, it, but it's even surprising that it would be that like top five, top six. You know what I mean? Right, right. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there was some piece about a po- I don't know. Yeah. Um. Okay, so for you, I went somewhat down the route of the graduate. Uh, this is all about like people. Ma- well, Richard Jenkins, at least, is someone married to a character from The Graduate. So I went with someone married to someone from The Graduate, and I have for you Mel Brooks. Oh boy! Now all of these are everything that's on his known for. He is on there for the acting credit. Okay, so it's not anything that he's directed, but is not in. Some of these he has directed, but but they're not. But it's not like uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It or something like that. That it's no. not. Uh... I'm pretty sure he's in Dracula. Yeah, Dead that's and true. Loving he's yeah, he, yeah. Usually he's. I, I loved that movie as a dumb. dumb Is he in the producers? Kid. I'm trying to think of like a Mel Brooks movie that he's not in. Well, anyway, whatever. I guess I'm getting in the realm of get, making you confirm or deny things that might be on it. Yeah, before you've made a guess. All right, so I'm gonna say Blazing Saddles. Correct. I'm going to say History of the World Part 1. Yes. All right. I can't remember whether he's in Young Frankenstein. I can't remember whether he's in The Producers. He's probably in The Producers in the spot. Producers. Uh, Which producers? Oh. Uh, two thousand five producers. Correct. <laughs> okay. All right, and then for a perfect score, spaceballs. Oh my god, you got a perfect score! <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I haven't had one of those. Spaceballs in a while. is so stupid. I should watch spaceballs. It's so funny. I love spaceballs. It's so funny. It's stupid. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um. 
Uh, Dot Matrix is my calling card for every time anybody on Drag Race tries something in gold that doesn't work for me. Uh, (laughs) Bag of Chips trying to dress as an Oscar in the UK versus the world, which was horrible. And why is your Oscar having uh, shoulder accoutrements? So, like, of course I said she looked like Dot Matrix from Spaceballs because uh, uh, Dot Matrix actually has a poofy skirt and shoulder pads in that movie. Like, you look like... Whatever. Anyway. (sighs) Alas. Alas, I think that is our episode. I think so. If you guys want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter uh, at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. Letterboxed, Joe Reed, Reed spelled the same way. Uh, and I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris v. File. That is F-E-I-L. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get those podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So don't be the sound of silence. Be the sound of noise uh, praising our podcast. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. You are a pig from hell. Baby, is that really what you want? Blessed up, so you got your head in the clouds. You made a fool out of you, and boy, she's bringing you down. She made the hard melt, but you're cold as a core. Now, rumor has it she ain't got your love anymore. Rumor has it. Rumor, rumor.